Good morning. Um, yeah, Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 13. Um, I'm going to be preaching from the ESV. What we just had read out was, I think, NIV. Um, slightly different. There are a few different words, but not to worry. It's all God's word. Um, yeah, have your Bibles open. Everyone's got a Bible now. Thank you. Um, yeah, this passage is seen as a bit of a parenthesis. It's a bit of a parenthetical thought. Um, we have Paul start off. He goes, on behalf of you Gentiles, I, for this reason, I pull a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then it sort of stops mid-sentence. That sentence doesn't carry on. And we'll get to the rest of that sentence in verse 14 next week. Um, yeah, let me just pray and then, yeah. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we are able to read it, that we're able to learn from it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight this morning, Lord. I pray that as we meditate on these things, as we think them through, that really it would be yeah, enlightening to us, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd give me strength. I pray that you'd help me. Uh, Father, I pray that I would become less and that you would become more. I pray that when people look, they do not see me, but they see you and your word, Lord. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, just as good Bible study technique, when we hear a for this reason, we need to go back and figure out what is the reason um, what is it that Paul is referring to here? So we're going to do a quick recap on the second half of chapter 2 that we heard last week. Um, and we can see that Paul gave the amazing news that the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, the people who were not the chosen people of God, the people who are idol worshippers and defiled according to the law, the ones that Paul says in chapter uh, 2 and verse 12, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These people, that is you and me, we have now been brought near by the blood of Christ and his work on the cross, and we've been extended the grace of God the Father. In chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Christ, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then in verses 17 to 21, he says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These verses to me are just profound and they are speaking of us. They're speaking of the Gentiles, of Christians, of believers. We are the ones that were far off, distant from God. We were worshipping things of our own creation. But God saw it fit 
to send his son to come and pay the price for our sin. To extend to us salvation from sin and to reconcile us to himself. And it is for this reason that Paul is going to pray. It is because of these things Paul will pray in verse 14 that we will see next week. As we already know, Paul in this letter, he says, I am a prisoner. He was imprisoned by the Romans. He highlights this. He says that he is a prisoner of Christ. This means that he is in prison for preaching Christ. He is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He is in prison for preaching that Christ lived and died and rose to save you, to save me. We see this happen in Acts 22, where after giving testimony to the people, they say this, and he, that is Christ, said to me, this is Paul speaking, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word, they listened to him, that is the Jews. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It was such an affront to the Jews that Paul was saying that the Gentiles could come into the family of God. So they said he shouldn't be allowed to live. And then Paul says here in verse 1 that it is on behalf of the Gentiles. In the New, Trans, uh, the New Living Translation, it says that it is for the benefit of the Gentiles. Part of Paul's imprisonment, then, is that it was for the sake of the Gentiles. It was because he was preaching of their salvation that he got arrested. And we don't finish this thought. We don't. We, we don't come back to it. That's, that's the end of the thought for the Gentiles. It's the end of the sentence. Not even. It is... Not resolved until verse 14, which we won't hear this Sunday. We'll just have to come back next week. But Paul doesn't finish, and so neither are we. So let's keep going. Verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Assuming you have heard. This phrase might sound a bit ambiguous. It may sound like he wasn't sure of their salvation. Like, I assume you've heard, but... But that's not what he's getting at. No, Paul knew that they'd heard of his ministry. They knew that he had been ordained as a steward. This phrase, however, seems to magnify the glorious grace of God by saying, assuming Paul is reflecting back to God the extent of his grace. Because of course they'd heard about it. Of course they'd heard of the grace of God. How could you not hear about it? Because without a doubt... Now, this word stewardship in the Greek is the Greek word oikonomia, I think. I think that's how you say it. There are probably people who can pronounce it better than I. And it's referring to this management position of the grace of God. Paul had been said, I'm a steward. I've been given this, this role to manage God's grace to give it to you. It's not my grace. It's God's grace. I'm the one telling you about this grace. It's a responsibility that has been given to Paul. Now, I'm sure that we've all been to some sort of conference or convention or something where you get to the entrance and you see the people in the high-vis, the bright yellow jackets, the stewards. These are the people that will take you to your seat or tell you where to go, tell you where the fire exits are, where you should sit. 
Well, that is what Paul had been commissioned to do for the Gentiles. He was there to show them the grace that they've been offered by God. God had said, okay, this is grace. Go preach it to the Gentiles. Preach to all creation this saving grace. And so Paul is there taking them to their metaphorical seats in the house of God. He's teaching them the blessings that they have in Christ. That we saw in, verse, in chapter 1. And although I'm speaking in they and them terms here, this ministry is still going on through God's word. We are still being shown to our seats through the letters of Paul. We're still being shown where we sit through God's holy scriptures. Where we sit in the household of God. It didn't benefit Paul to have this ministry though. If anything, it did the opposite. It was the reason that he was eventually killed. He was preaching the gospel to those who were far off. It got him arrested and sent to Rome and killed. But it was given to Paul so that he could take it to the Gentiles. And through his gospel preaching, all that would listen would have that opportunity extended to them for salvation. Or in this case, we read it. We still have that same opportunity. God has very clearly sent out the message that his grace is for all, that the cross is for all. And that all who know these things already should proclaim it to the rest of the world. That is what we should be doing. Verse 3. How this mystery, how the mystery was made known to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Paul, whom we have already seen in chapter 2, has begun to unpack some of the mystery, and he goes on. Now, we've, we're 2,000 years on from this, and so we have a fairly good idea of what the mystery is already. And the mystery is, that, is the, tr um, the truth that God wants to unite the Jews and the Gentiles into one church, one body. That is what this mystery is. And that the Jews, although they are God's chosen holy nation, they are not the only people that God will deal with from this point on. This fact is something that was given to Paul directly from God. Um, after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and after he escaped from Damascus, um, we see in Galatians 1 that he went into the wilderness for three years. Um, it says in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 19, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no one, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. We don't know what happened during these three years. It's not written down as the other two verses. Um, but I think that it was during this time that Paul spent studying and being given direct revelation from God. Paul was a Pharisee after all. He was a learned man. He knew how to study. Um, he wanted to understand exactly what God wanted him to preach. He wanted to be able to completely know everything. He didn't know everything. But he wanted to have that, yeah that insight, so that he could properly proclaim to the rest of the world. 
And then what we have here is what God has given through Paul. What, what he has given to the Ephesians and to us and to all Christians for all time. And it was in this time that God made known the mystery of the church, the unity of Jew and Gentile. And then this is what Paul had written to them. This is what we saw in chapter 2, and this is what we will continue to see throughout Ephesians. Going on, verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. As we hear this, as the Ephesians heard this, as we go through the epistle, we, as Paul says here, can see the things that have been revealed. The clarity of the mystery. Those things that were hidden for ages past. We see here that Paul says, the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. This is talking about the prophets, those Old Testament prophets that we have in the scriptures. The men of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. And although God used these men and gave them real insight, these are people like Elijah and Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi. And these men that, that were real people that we look up to as Christians. People who are prophets to the, that made known his word to the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations in a time. And although, had, although we've had some prophecies that haven't yet come to pass... None of them were ever told, none of these men were ever told that God was going to unite the Jew and the Gentile into one church, into one body. That was never made known to them. But as the plan of God had been carried out and Christ had been crucified and then raised from the dead, and then as the church starting at Pentecost with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and later with Paul on the road to Damascus, this mystery was revealed to the men, to the apostles, and the prophets who were needed at the beginning of the church. And the apostles were given this special ministry and role in the early church. From the way that Paul speaks of them, it's clear. He calls them God's holy apostles. His set-apart apostles. Although the message was given to them, it was not for them. John was the only apostle that actually didn't die through torture or non-natural causes. No, we can see here in this verse that it was from the Holy Spirit, it was from God, and it was given to all of them to give to the rest of the world, to preach to all of creation. It wasn't just for Paul, and it wasn't just Paul who was telling everyone of the mystery revealed. So were all of the other apostles. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I think this is the most explicitly made clear mystery The Gentiles are included in God's family. 
In this verse, we can see that Paul gives them three qualifications, gives the Gentiles three qualifications. Firstly, that they are fellow heirs. That is, that they are able to come into the household. They have the exact same treatment as the Jews. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit bears, witnesses, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. As part of, as part of our joining to the body of Christ, we are placed into a position of sonship. We are no longer debtors to the flesh. We are now children of God. That is our position. There is no changing that. For the rest of eternity, you are a child of God. I am a child of God. In this position of sonship, of becoming a child of God, this was now extended to all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. You have the opportunity to come to Christ and to be welcomed into the family of God, to be joined with him. be given an inheritance. This inheritance is the things that we saw in the first 10, 13 verses of chapter 1. All those spiritual blessings. And as heirs, it means then that we receive all of these things separate from our deeds. We do not inherit these things based on our works. I did not choose to be born, but by the fact that I was born, I am my father's heir. I can't change that. The difference is that I can choose to follow God. And then we are born again into this heirship, this, this inheritance that God has for us. And as we saw here in Romans, there is suffering tied to that. By inheriting, by inheriting all the good things, we're also saying that we are willing to suffer because Christ is worth it. Christ is greater than anything we could have on earth. Secondly, we are told that we are members of the same body. Now just for a second, put yourself into the mindset of a first century Jew. A first century Israelite. It would have been ridiculous to say that the Jews and the Gentiles are of the same body to this person. In Acts 11, after Peter has shared the gospel with Cornelius the centurion, he heads back to Jerusalem. It says in Acts 11, verses 1 to 3, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Instead of celebrating that the gospel had gone to the Gentiles, that the gospel had gone to everyone, that there was this possibility to be saved for anyone, the circumcision party, that is these Jewish Christians who still felt they needed to follow the law, criticized him, criticized Peter for going into a Gentile, a Roman's home. And I'm sure that they knew that there were Gentiles who had trusted God before this, You've got Rahab in the book of Joshua. You've got Ruth in the book of Ruth. These people trusted God, and I'm sure, that we, I'm sure that we will see them in eternity. But for them to be equal to the Jews, of the same body, 
talk about a statement of unity. If anyone is in Christ, then it no longer matters what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. If you're in Christ, then you are a Christian. You are part of the body. That is all. Nothing else matters. The third qualification that we see here is that the Gentiles are now partakers of the promise. Now, which promise this is, it's not completely clear. Some say that it was potentially the Holy Spirit, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Another thing that it could be is um, the blessings that God had promised to Abraham for the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. These are both very, very reasonable things to consider as promises of God to us. And it can be really encouraging to look at these promises and speculate on them. But we must remember, we must remember where these promises are. This is something that we see at the end of verse 6. They're in Christ through the gospel. It's only through Jesus Christ and his death on the re and resurrection and faith in him that any can be saved. And it is only when you have faith in him and are born again, and born again into the body of Christ that you will begin to see these things coming to reality. It is only in Christ that we have anything. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul's ministry was directly tied to the gospel. God had given him this job, this responsibility, as we've already seen when we heard him talking about the stewardship that he had been given. And so adding to that, he calls it his ministry. It was given to him in accordance or in line with God's grace. That is to say that the grace given here is given for the purpose of ministering to the Gentiles. In, giving, in God giving Paul the stewardship of grace and making him a minister of the gospel, he imparts a certain amount of responsibility to him. This is something that Paul takes seriously. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The statement is one of utter conviction, complete sold-outness for God and his glorious grace. Paul sees that when the gospel is loved and being proclaimed, that there is nothing man can do to stop it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in, the righteous, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul sees that this gospel of which he is a minister is of the utmost importance. And it is something that we need to have in the center of our minds as Christians. 
As we follow Christ, we need to be people of the book, people of the Bible. So that when we see something that isn't the gospel, we can say, that's not the gospel. That's a different gospel. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. If anyone preaches a different gospel than the one that we have in the Bible, even if Paul preaches a different gospel to the one we have in the Bible, then they have got a curse on them. They've got an anathema, a separation from God. That is what he is saying here in this verse. And Paul was a minister of the gospel. It was what he was preaching. It was that Christ came and died to take away the sins of the world. That he rose on the third day and after 40 days ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And that through this great act of reconciliation, he extended the offer of salvation to all. The only thing that we need to do is accept this offer. This is the essence of the gospel. And all of it was given to Paul and to us by God. And it is also he who sustains it. He who has kept it for centuries, millennia. And we see that Paul is only capable of doing this by the working of God's power. He's only able to minister by the strength of God. Today, we have a different experience of God than that of Paul, but it is the same strength that we work on. It is the same person who we rely on to give us strength, day in, day out. Without God, we can do nothing. Verse 8 and 9. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, Paul is an interesting figure to study. He is a man whom God used greatly to spread the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, and by some accounts, he even went to Spain. If you look at that distance that he covered and the number of churches that he helped plant, whether directly or indirectly, to say that this man is the least of all the saints seems to me at first glance to be understating his position. However, I think that from this we can see that Paul was very aware of who he was before Christ. He remembered his past and he knew full well just how much Christ had done in his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul sees clearly what he was. And yet, even though he was all of these things, he was not too much for the grace of God. He goes on saying that this commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles 
was part of the grace. God had saved him from what he was and told him to go and preach to those who were far off. Preach to those who would never hear otherwise. And what did he preach? He preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. Um, yeah, this word unsearchable here could be translated as not capable of being traced by footprints. The riches of Christ are so abundant, so abounding, that they cannot be overreached. You cannot go further than the riches of Christ. It is impossible. And it's not even like you can get right to the edge. Right on, I'm on the very edge of the riches of Christ, and one more step and I'm over. No, you can't even get close to the edge. The riches of Christ are so abounding, so abundant, that it is like you are always in the middle. No matter how far you go, they are unfathomable. And Paul continues with the message that he was commissioned to preach. He comes back to it again. This message is one of the revealed mystery. That God created the church, bringing unity to the Jew and Gentile in Christ. And Paul, I think, makes it clear that this plan, this mystery, was hidden in God. In the God of the universe. It is the same God who created the universe and everything in it. Who created humanity and chose Israel to be his people. It is this same God who created the church. It is the same God who broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It is the same God who made it possible for all to be saved by grace through faith. It is the same God who ripped the curtain when Christ died from top to bottom. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We continue to see here that this is all still connected back to Paul's commission to preach. To his preaching that God had given him the grace to do. And this word here, manifold, is the Greek word polypoikilos. It means many-sided or very many-sided. So what does it mean that God's wisdom is many-sided, or very many-sided? Well, if you imagine with me a beautifully cut diamond. If you hold it up to the light, you see how it glistens, how the light comes in from one side and reflects out of a different side. And as you turn it in the light, you can see it reflecting in ways that you hadn't seen it before. That beauty is shown even more. Well, that is what the wisdom of God is like. It is like a diamond that when it is turned in the light, it shows new things coming out of it. As you walk with the Lord, you will see this, that God will work in ways that you would never have thought possible. You'll see that diamond turn and light come out in a new way. You'll work in ways that you never thought possible, but he and his infinite manifold wisdom will show you. And we'll walk with you in those ways. And this is being shown through the church, not for the sake of the church. No, it's for the sake of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are spiritual beings. These are the angels and demons, if you will. Spiritual beings in the world. And there's something that um, 
It is these beings that we hear about later in chapter 6. Verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual force, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is the same spiritual forces that we wrestle against that God shows his wisdom through the church to. It is the unification of Jew and Gentile in the church that demonstrates his great and unmatched, very many-sided wisdom to those who are against him. Verse 11. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we then see, God started the church. He made known his wisdom through it. He has united believers in it and is glorified by it. God's actions that Paul has mentioned in these verses have all been in accordance with his eternal plan. His plan from ages past. God knew what would happen before he created the earth. He knew that there would be a need for a savior. He knew that the only person suitable to be that savior was God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so before the beginning of the world, he had already planned out how he would win back the people. And how he would win back people from the highway to hell. And it was through the death and resurrection that this plan was finally realized. It was finally finished, as Jesus proclaimed on the cross. And it is through the Son, it is through Christ, who is the truth, the way and the life, that the door has been opened. And because the door is now open, that means that we can come to God, we can come to Christ in our prayers with boldness. We don't need to cower in fear for our circumstances. We don't need to worry about our position, those things are already done and sorted. It's in Christ that we can boldly approach God. There is no longer a need for a human mediator. Our mediator is now in heaven. And so because of this reality, we can come directly to him with our praise and our prayers and access him or come to him directly without fear because we are saved in him. Because we have believed and been saved, we can then be sure that he hears our prayers and cares about them. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, say, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need in time of need god wants us to come close he wants us to draw near to him he wants to have relationship with us and he has made it possible for that to happen through christ through the work on the cross verse 13 so i ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. As we come to the end of this section in Ephesians, we see the reality of the church in Ephesus. They are worrying for the sake of Paul. They were concerned because he was a prisoner. And there may have been some who was questioning the goodness of God in that. And questioning how can God be good and still let this amazing man, Paul, who brought us the gospel, how can, they, how can a good God let him rot away in a prison cell? And Paul knows this. This is why he says not to lose heart. It's almost like he's saying, just because I'm suffering, just because there is trouble for me at the moment, doesn't mean that God is any less good. Doesn't mean that God is any less faithful. God is still good. God is still faithful, even when times are tough. And just like in verse 1, he says that he's, he is a prisoner on their behalf, on the behalf of the Gentiles. And he says that his suffering is for you, that is... His suffering is for the Gentiles, is for their glory. It's to say that the sufferings of Paul are benefiting the spiritual growth of these believers. One commentator says, which is, rather, which are your glory, namely inasmuch as showing that God loved you so much so as to both give you his son for you and permit his apostles to suffer tribulations for you and preaching the gospel to Gentiles, my tribulations are for your spiritual glory as your faith is furthered thereby. Even when things are tough, even when we go through hard times, even when we have friends that are suffering, God is no less good or faithful in that. So that's the end of the section. I've just got a couple of applications for us. We've heard about this amazing grace of God throughout this. We've heard about this amazing mystery that has been revealed in the church. And how do we apply that to our lives? How does this affect you and me today? Well, firstly, we can rejoice that the mystery is no longer a mystery. The Jews and the Gentiles are no longer separated. We rejoice that God has poured out his grace on us. And that we as believers can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come before our Father anytime, anywhere. Remember that. Remember that we are all part of the body of Christ, that we have an inheritance in him, and that we have every spiritual blessing in the spiritual places. Remember these things and rejoice in them. Secondly, second application, share the gospel. Jesus Christ lived and died so that all could come to him. He died on that cross, paying the once-for-all price for our sin that we might be reconciled to himself. He took our place. And if you have faith in him, then you have been saved from the wrath of God. This is a fact. And the fact is also that anyone that isn't in Christ, anyone that has yet to believe, they're still under that wrath and judgment. Please, please don't assume that the people that you see every day who aren't saved will still be around tomorrow for you to tell them the gospel. Because the reality is they might not be. If they die tonight, they are going to be under the perfect judgment of God. And they will not stand up. They will be condemned, condemned to hell. But we have the good news. We should share it with them. 
Paul was in chains for the gospel. And instead of sitting back and doing nothing about it, twiddling his thumbs, can't do anything from prison. No, he writes letters and shares the gospel with the prison guards, the people that he was chained to. Let's have the attitude of Paul then and share the gospel at every opportunity. Preaching to those who are far off and bringing them near to the family of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can read it, that we can be edified by it, that we can be challenged by it. Father, it is a difficult thing to just go out and share the gospel. Father, I pray that you give us confidence to do that, Lord, that we wouldn't fear or worry about what the ramifications might be, Lord, but that we would look to you and trust in you. Because we know, Lord, that you are a good, good father. You are a good God. You are faithful, whatever our situation, whatever our circumstance. Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you that this mystery has been revealed, Lord. I thank you that we can gather together as a body of Christ, that we can come together without thinking about racial or any other sort of distinction, Lord, that the Jew and the Gentile are now one in Christ. Father, I pray that we all be able to meditate on these things for this week, Lord, that we continue to be challenged by you and by your word, Lord, and that we continue to share the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.